You're listening to a Royal Children's Hospital Education Hub podcast. This is an Allied Health and Nursing Education Outreach Program podcast in collaboration with the Education Hub at the Royal Children's Hospital. Hi everyone, my name is Virginia Beckerman and I work as one of the nurse educators in the Allied Health and Nursing Education Outreach Program here at the Royal Children's Hospital. I'm delighted to be here today. We're speaking with vascular access expert, Eloise Borello, who is the clinical nurse consultant here at the RCH. You'll note from here on that I refer to Eloise as Ella and that Ella is likely to refer to me mostly as Jin throughout the podcast. So Ella, from here, would you like to introduce yourself a bit further to our audience? Thanks, Jin, and thank you for having me here today. I'm actually really excited to be here and talk about vascular access with you. Uh, yes, yeah, so my name's Ella and I'm the Vascular Access CNC at the RCH. And my role's actually positioned in the quality and improvement team. So I've been in this job for about four years. And before doing this work, I was an oncology nurse. And this is where my passion for vascular access really started. And that sort of started by thinking about ways that we could reduce bloodstream infections for children with cancer who were dependent on their central line. And yeah, so that's where we are today and I'm really excited to be here and share some thoughts and maybe some pearls of wisdom with you and also to learn from you. Thanks, Ella. I think there'll definitely be some pearls of wisdom for us here today. So I thought perhaps to get things started, it would be great to talk a little bit about the history of peripheral lines and vascular access in paediatrics. I know this is a forte of yours, Ella, and just to talk us through a little bit about how we've arrived at where we are here today. Yeah, you know, I'm a bit of a history buff, so (laughs) I do think it's important to look back from where we've started to how we've got to today. And I've actually been doing a little bit of reading to rustle up my understanding of this. But vascular access spans back to the 16th century, where animal-to-animal blood transfusions first started. Don't think they were that successful. (laughs) I don't know how they recorded that they did this either, but this is where the story begins. Great. And it wasn't actually until 1818 when the first successful human blood transfusion occurred. And this happened in a lady who had suffered a postpartum hemorrhage. And she was, yes, the successful recipient of blood products. And they describe what they used to make vascular access devices, or what we'd call a peripheral line today. And they used feather quills to uh, inject into the patient's vein to deliver the blood product. It's amazing. I'm not sure how that would sit against no. the Australian standard today. No, probably not. <laughs> but I think they were pretty resourceful doing the best they could with Definitely. what they had. But yeah, so now in 2021, a vascular access device comes in many different shapes, sizes, number of lumens, and it can be also inserted into a number of different veins. So for our peripheral lines, they're usually inserted in the arm. The most common site in children is to be inserted in the hand, and that's been demonstrated by big point prevalence surveys. They can also be inserted into the foot and in sometimes in small babies in the scalp in emergency situations. So yeah, we've got a lot more to choose from now, but we still find lots of challenges with inserting and maintaining these devices. And I wonder, Ella, you know, we talk about inserting lines in children and it being a procedure that it feels like we do all the time. I'm wondering in the literature and in your experience how common it is. Is it a common procedure? Absolutely. It's think one of the most common procedures yeah. uh, performed in children presenting to hospital and the latest data I saw said that 50% of children coming to hospital will require a peripheral intravenous cannula it's for high, their treatment. It? Yeah, yeah it's half. Yeah and, uh, and I think the other discussion that's happening in the vascular access community is how many of those devices get inserted and don't get used? How many yeah. do we put in just in case? 
yeah. are they removed when they're no longer required? So it sort of opens up a lot of other questions. Is a peripheral cannula the actual best form of treatment for this patient or we're we just putting it in because we're taking a blood test and we think oh I might as well pop a cannula in as well so there's lots of other questions around this but yes it's a very very common procedure and such an important question particularly that one I think about are we putting it in just in case and I think you know I can talk on behalf of some of the emergency population in pediatrics and in adults where we do when we're doing that first blood test we often do put it in potentially just oh, in case. Yeah, so and I've had it for myself yeah. when I've gone to hospital. I've yeah. just had a cannula in and yep. was walked out of the hospital yeah. two hours later. And I, I, <laughs> yeah, and there we go. Yeah. Obviously in kids it's a little bit different, isn't yeah. it? So, yeah. so we've mentioned about ongoing challenges, about being a common procedure, an ongoing challenge potentially with insertion and then maintenance of peripheral lines in paediatrics. Why are there those challenges? What are, what are they and why? Well, I think there's many and we probably won't cover them all today. I'm pretty confident we won't cover every single one, but I'm just going to sort of point out some of the general things to think about. And I'd say the number one is that children uh, anatomically are different to adults. They're smaller and they don't have as many vessels that we can access as easily. And those vessels that we can access are often difficult to palpate and they're difficult to see so it's almost going in a little bit blindly. Um, and Jean, I think you've cannulated a lot of children and can share that experience. Yeah, and I think it, it is obviously so true and depends sometimes on the age and stage of the child, but sometimes particularly for the toddler age group. I'm referring to one age group in particular, but it's, it can be extremely challenging. Yeah, and I think the next thing part to that is in that toddler age group, I'm not sure about you and I'm... I can definitely say with quite a lot of confidence, I've never met a three-year-old that's held their hand out and said, go for it and put a cannula in. No, that is definitely my personal experience. (laughs) If they have, they're probably not very well. No, (laughs) no, exactly. So we know that uh, children don't necessarily understand why they need a cannula. They can uh, wriggle and squirm and it's a bit of a moving target. They're really difficult to get in in the first place. And the second part of that, I guess, is often we need to try multiple times to get them in because of all of those factors that we've just talked about. So we've talked about the challenges of getting them in. So once that precious cannula is in the vein, we want to keep it there. So what often happens once the cannula is in is we like to cover it up and keep it secure. And I'd say there's a really fine line between keeping the line secure and safe and well in place and a little bit too much tape. So we've found from auditing that sometimes the insertion site can be covered and when the insertion site's covered we actually don't really know what's going on underneath the dressing. So that makes site assessment really difficult and because of all of these factors they actually we know that cannulas fail quite frequently before the end of treatment. So I think the latest study I read was about that's about one in three cannulas will fail before end of intended treatment. And the leading cause of failure which was published in a big systematic review last year in 2020 was infiltration. So 10% of all PRVC failure was due to infiltration injuries, which means that instead of the catheter delivering fluid into the vein, that catheter slipped out and it's actually infusing into tissue, partial or partially into tissue. Not cool, basically, no. really. No, it's really is tricky. It? No, it's really very hard. much so. And yeah. I think and this is something that we were actually just chatting about before is about how clinicians do try their best. And when you refer to tapes going on, I think it, it's done with good intention. You know, Absolutely. we want that line to stay in yep. and we do our best to do that. But there is, as you say, the converse side to that of how do we keep assessing the line and what makes it easy for us as clinicians and particularly nurses at the bedside continually maining, maintaining those lines. Yeah, absolutely. Kids that are asleep, how yeah. do we get in there yeah. and yeah. tuck them and look at them when they're a little yeah. baby that's 
swaddled up. It's lots of things to consider. Definitely. Being the most commonly performed procedure in paediatrics, Ella, I wondered now if you could talk us through some of the associated harms that can be caused from peripheral lines. So you've mentioned infiltration. Mm -hmm. I wonder if there's anything else that's associated with peripheral lines and harm in the literature. So yeah, I'll I'll talk about the literature and some of, I guess, my experience and I'd be keen Mm. to hear your experience as well. It is a really common procedure, but it's actually reported to be one of the most scary procedures for both children and parents when their child is presenting to hospital and needs a cannula. And I definitely know in just in general conversations with patients and families, they don't hold back about talking about this. This Mm. is something that uh, is scary to them. And there's been, may have been some previously traumatic experiences that they hold on to. So going into that the next time is really hard. Uh, and some of the qualitative rich literature that's been published says they use words like dread. I'm, I'm filled with dread when my child needs to be cannulated. So that's the sort of like, there's a psychological sort of component to it, but also the other harms are the physical harm that the patient may experience. So we've spoken about infiltration. The other word that's used in combination with this is extravasation. So there's a bit of contention about what defines an infiltration injury and an extravasation injury by definition they're both the same thing so Mm -hmm. fluids leaked out from the space it's not meant to be in Mm -hmm. and but just the type of infusate is different so an extravasation injury is usually associated with fluids that have sort of toxic properties and can cause more damage so uh, chemotherapy is certainly type of fluid that can be potentially quite toxic to tissue and that's why most oncology patients will have a central line to sort of mitigate that risk. Thank you Ella and I think your point there about the psychosocial is a significant one and I can't imagine how much more literature there is on that I think from personal and professional experience as well it's definitely something as you say that parents and families will talk about particularly of course not so much of course if it's gone well if it's gone well then hopefully it's great and done but particularly if there's needed to be repeated cannulation there's no doubt about it definitely terrifying yeah and and sorry it's just one other thing I think we should mention is the other types of complications we see which would be in addition to infiltration and extravasation injuries are the device is falling out yes pressure injuries leaking occlusion there's actually a whole raft of complications that make up PIVC failure. Yeah, thank you, Ella. So as our podcast is listened to a wide variety of clinicians, whether they be internally here at RCH or external, we know that due to the range of different clinician disciplines listening, potentially not just nurses, but uh, medical staff or allied health professionals, I thought it could be good for you to talk us through some of the options that external sites might be able to implement in their own facilities in order to improve the quality and safety of vascular line access in paediatrics. Great. Thank you for such a good question. I think I'd probably like to start by saying that I don't think we have this perfect yet either. I think this is actually really, and I think it's really important to be honest about that and say Mm. we're not perfect with And I don't think anywhere is, so I think I can also safely say that. But I think the aim of this discussion is to encourage centres to be on a continuous cycle of improvement. Mm. So taking really small steps to understand where they're at and what small changes they can do to improve care for patients. But I guess I'll start with some of the general principles of all vascular access devices, and that's infection prevention measures, which will coincide with other activity in the hospital. But you know, doing maybe doing some auditing on aseptic technique 
how well are the key parts and key sites protected of that device? You know, scrub the hub. That's something that's a term that I think is um, most centres will be familiar with, with disinfecting catheter hubs before accessing them. And of course, hand hygiene. Some other things to maybe consider is specific to paediatric patients is the procedural support before inserting the line. So coming up with a bit of a plan on how the device is going to be inserted, who's going to do the procedure, who's going to be supporting the patient and their family, who's going to be doing the talking in the room, sort of actually creating a calm environment amongst yourselves before involving the patient. I think that's just always a good place to start. I think that's an excellent place to start. And I know that we will most likely be doing a future podcast that goes into more detail oh, as well on, on procedure preparation. So I think, but those key points that you've mentioned about having a plan at the minimum, knowing how many people you're going to have with you and potentially knowing what your backup is yeah. going to be yeah. if yeah. it is unsuccessful. Yeah, because uh, once you're in the situation, it can become quite stressful yeah, um, definitely. quickly. And and then I guess the other side of that is how well you've prepared the patient. So I think I'm just going to share some tips that I've had in conversation with some of our child life therapists who are experts on this. And I'm not going to be claimed to have any amount of expertise compared to them, but I just really appreciated some of the general tips that they've got for any procedure. And that would be, you know, using distraction as a method of before you start the procedure. Does the child like distraction? Mm. Sometimes dangling something in front of a child who's screaming, it actually is making things worse. Yes. But also what, what are other options? You know, so we tend to these days and, you know, we're chatting about this before back when we're back in our day when yeah. we started the only distraction tools we had were you know bubbles squishy balls books hmm. and now we've tend we tend to go towards iPads and phones make a lot of noise but it's actually always worth considering what those old ones are so they yeah. they are also just as effective if not more so but also just having options for the child what is it that they like that's actually working really well mm. so that's sort of some general sort of principles about working with children mm. But then I guess from a quality and improvement point of view, there's lots of other things to consider. And I'd also just like to start by sharing some of the best advice that I was ever given. And it can be a bit overwhelming when you think about how's the best way to tackle these problems that we've got and what's the first step. But I guess the first thing thing to start with is having a bit of data. And that data doesn't have to be incredibly fancy, but having some data is better than having no data. And also it helps you understand what problem it is that you're trying to fix. So, and when I say, what data do you want to collect? You don't have to have 50 patients of auditing that you've done. Having 10 patients is better than having no patients. So starting by thinking about maybe doing some auditing on the ward, but also before you start doing that, having some key stakeholder engagement, who are the people that are involved in this? Junior staff, so junior medical and nursing staff, senior medical and nursing staff, some patients and families if they're um, available and sort of coming up with a bit of a plan. And then when you're thinking about auditing, what is it that you're looking for? So things that we've done in the past is we've actually literally just gone to the wards and looked at the patient's peripheral line and looked at the notes. So what does the peripheral line look like at that point in the day? How is it dressed? How is it secured? How many different types of tape were used? What size is the cannula? Then you might want to look through the notes. How many times did it take to insert the device? What are the patient sort of characteristics? And then you've sort of got some baseline data to sort of really become build a quality plan to move forward. And the other thing I'll add about auditing is, and this it's again, this doesn't have to be big fancy audits. This is under the sort of the quality and improvement model. It's not. I'm not saying it's the aim for this would be for big publications. So mm. that would be a very different process altogether with mm. ethic ethics approval. 
but it's actually a really great chance to talk to patients and families and see in sort of really pristine conditions what is going on and you can have a really good conversation with what patients' experiences have been in the past and how that can also help lead you moving forward. Fantastic. Thank you, Ella. And I know that in the past when we've just, because we both like talking about this stuff, you've mentioned about, you know, collecting sort of that, you know, whether you're collecting prospective data versus retrospective and that there could be a potential place for both. Absolutely. In your data collection as well. As you say, Pat's doing, you know, you just your, your point audit as such and looking at the retrospective information or then thinking about what do I want moving forward as well and I think this again this is just my personal opinion there's a bit of hesitancy to look back retrospectively because you're not going to know there's going to be a lot of gaps in the data potentially Mm. but that in itself is actually a really important point because if we can't find the data we don't actually know how well we're documenting these events so that actually gives us information in itself so yeah best advice is just to start somewhere and start with small steps and then move forward so true well Thank you, Ella, and thank you very much for having a chat with me here today. I think some of the three key points that I've learned from our discussion has been that vascular access in paediatrics remains one of our greatest challenges in paediatric healthcare delivery, and that really doesn't matter whether you may be, it doesn't depend on the size of your site, if you like. And when I say site, I mean healthcare site, not peripheral site. <laughs> but, you know, it's, it is a challenge for all of the reasons that we've talked about today. As clinicians, we need to consider the quality and safety of what we're doing in inserting and managing peripheral lines in paediatrics. And perhaps from today, you might want to think about, to our listeners, doing an audit in your local facility and finding out what exists for you where you are to better help inform what measures you might want to change moving forward from a quality and a safety perspective. So, Ella, thank you very much. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. Thanks for listening. Please view the description section below for more information on this topic. The Education Hub is a collaboration between the Royal Children's Hospital and the University of Melbourne Department of Paediatrics and funded by the RCH Foundation.